a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, we're going to dive right in here. I've got uh, Caleb Franz joining us from Profiles in History, a podcast if you haven't subscribed to, you really should subscribe to. And it's uh, our History in Action segment. Caleb, great to have you back on the show. Hey, Brian. Uh, I am thrilled to be here. It was a, a lot of fun last time, and I think we're going to get into a lot of fun this time as well. Now, it, as, as luck would have it, this is taking place very close to President's Day, and you came prepared today to talk about uh, presidents. And go ahead and lay out for us. What, what are some of the areas that you would like to cover in this segment? Yeah, that's right. Well, I, I think that uh, there's there's certainly a lot of ground to cover, um, and I don't think we can we can go into each and every president here in this in this limited time that we have here in this segment. But I do think that there are a few uh, highlights uh, to consider, some some major uh, hits, as well as some major uh, losses. Probably more so in the realm of major losses, uh, and uh, and uh, we can we can just kind of see where that direction takes us for that. Okay. Uh, now, I noticed, first of all, you listed George Washington's legacy. And since I always associate President's Day with George Washington, um, what are, what's your take on his legacy? I mean, there was a time where, you know, well, he's the father of our country, cherry pie, cannot tell a lie and all that. Um, there seems to be a little different focus these days in, in at least uh, how history is, is taught. Yeah, that's right. I, and I, I think that's... Um, you know, focusing on George Washington first is is probably the most uh, most accurate and and the way that I prefer to think of President's Day because otherwise uh, I see a bunch of people who don't necessarily uh, deserve to be celebrated just by the merits of being presidents in and of themselves. Uh, but whereas George Washington celebrating his birthday is something I'm much more comfortable with doing. Um, overall, I would say that George Washington had a very positive uh, legacy on this country and especially in the realm of, of defending uh, the ideas of liberty. I think probably the most important thing that any president has ever done uh, was uh, George Washington's decision to reject uh, unilateral authority on multiple occasions, but especially uh, on his on his last occasion, where he he stepped down um, from the office of presidency of the of the presidency after two terms, um, that was probably the most important uh, act by any president um, to establish that this country is going to be a republic and it's going to stay a republic. Uh, rather than uh, descend into a dictatorship or any sort of a monarchy, because a lot of the <laughs> consensus in in that uh, in that day, a lot of people would have been very happy if George Washington just just stayed in power forever. Um, but he had the good foresight to understand that this was about something bigger than him, uh, um, and that was uh, easily, in my opinion, uh, the most important act that any president has done. Uh, that's not to say that he didn't have any faults uh, or, or failures throughout his administration. Um, I like to point out that the uh, probably the biggest fault or the biggest failure that he had was appointing uh, Alexander Hamilton in his administration <laughs> um, and giving him and entrusting him with way more authority 
Uh, you know, he's he's he was the first pres- uh, uh, Treasury Secretary, but he had a lot more authority than just than just uh, just the realms of the Treasury. Uh, and a lot of that uh, came down to Washington's trust of Alexander Hamilton as a friend of his. Uh, and Hamilton ended up, I think, abusing a lot of that trust. Uh, and that ended up doing far more damage, probably uh, in the inverse of, of what Washington did with uh, stepping down from, from his position of authority. That set America up to eventually have this road of going down on a path of of uh, a constantly consuming government authority in, in the central government in uh, in Washington D.C. Yeah, I, Alexander Hamilton clearly was a consolidationist in his approach, um, yes. as, as opposed to Jefferson, who was not. Yes, um, Washington somehow seemed to land right in between. And and if if someone would ask me, well, surely he has some faults. The one fault I would point to is I think his handling of the Whiskey Rebellion was mm-hmm. was an abuse and, of, of federal authority. And, and a lot of that also, um, to, you know, to, to that point, a lot of that uh, ultimately goes back to the advice of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, a lot of the things that that he he did, he gave him so much uh, trust that he, a lot of times, overrode the suggestions and the better judgment, even when Washington was initially inclined to agree with the likes of someone like Thomas Jefferson and his cabinet, uh, Alexander Hamilton, his approach was generally to just overwhelm George Washington with, uh, with a really solid, or at least in his view, a really solid argument of why he should do things, even if his initial inclination was to do the opposite. Um, and that led him to, to take some decisions to do things that, uh, really were were detrimental to to the ideas of liberty. I do like what you pointed out too, though, about uh, Washington's reluctance to to mm-hmm. hang on to power. You don't see that in politicians much these no. days. But that's exactly the kind of person you'd want in a leadership position. Tell me, yes, what's, yes. Your, what's your take on the most underrated president in our history? You know, I, I thought about this uh, a little bit leading up, and and there are a few options that I, I could have pulled from. Um, but ultimately, I, I keep going back to uh, Calvin Coolidge. Uh, this is obviously, you know, for, for I'm sure a lot of your your listeners are, are probably familiar with kind of the 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 basics of of what he did um, uh, during the Roaring Twenties and how he unleashed this economic prosperity um, is, that started with Warren Harding, but really ca- uh, uh, culminated with with the presidency of Calvin Coolidge. But I think what was most important about Coolidge was not even anything that he did on the economic front, but rather uh, the fact that I see him as as probably the most good president that we have ever had as far as terms of of character. Um, And and he had a lot of similarities to George Washington in that respect. Uh, One of my favorite stories is whenever he was at Mount Rushmore, uh, and he locked all these reporters into a room and handed them all a piece of paper uh, and w- when he was up for uh, re-election. And everyone was wanting to know if he was going to run, and he, and he handed them this piece of paper, and he told them to open them all at the same time. And it said, I choose not to run uh, for re-election. And then he said, I will not be taking any questions and left the room. <laughs> and, and I think that is, it's, it's amusing story. Uh, but also I think it reflects, 
he only ran uh, for for the office of the presidency once. He honestly gave up more authority than even George Washington did because Washington ran for re-election at least once, whereas Calvin Coolidge did not do that. He fell into the position uh, and then he ran for, for, for the position once and then he said, okay, that's it, because he knew the danger of the authority and it was such a good a time too as well because he was right sandwiched in between the two eras of progressivism uh, between uh, the uh, the legacy of Woodrow Wilson on one end and then the legacy of Franklin Roosevelt and uh, the other. I think that was one of the most important acts that, that any president uh, had did at one of the most important times that he could have done it. So who would you say is the most overrated president? Well, there's there's certainly a lot of options here as well. Um, But uh, ultimately, I think I'm going to choose uh, Theodore Roosevelt for this one. Uh, I think that uh, this is someone who a lot of people kind of have a knee jerk reaction to want to like because there's a big personality there. And then there is uh, obviously a a lot of mythology around uh, Teddy Roosevelt. But this was ultimately a guy who I consider to be the first step towards really unleashing this this government leviathan, yep. uh, especially in the executive branch um, that uh, that we see ourselves in today, where we're constantly in the most important election of our of our lifetime uh, because the stakes are so high because the power of the executive branch is so high. I ultimately think I, I put that down uh, on uh, on Teddy Roosevelt's and I, I think that that's a real danger that he he established okay we got about 30 seconds here but I got to know who do you think the most damaging president was you know or there's is, uh, as the case may be. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think that uh, a lot of people uh, especially in conservative or libertarian circles might tend to lean towards Franklin Roosevelt um, however I have to go with Woodrow Wilson for this. Uh, this is the guy who completely undermined the fabric of of the founders' visions uh, for the United States. Uh, that idea of America as being a uh, a more liberal society. So I got to go with Woodrow Wilson. Yep, Sixteenth and Seventeenth Amendments. We feel the pain of those things on a pretty regular Absolutely. basis. Yep. Caleb, where can people find Profiles in History podcast? Uh, Profiles in Liberty is on uh, anywhere where you get uh, your podcasts from uh of course i am on twitter at caleb friends as well so you can uh follow me or shoot me a dm and i'll be happy to chat about the show with you okay i'll have a correct link with the correct name in the show notes (laughs) thanks again man thank you brian this is the brian hyde show This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to my sponsors, including LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAmmo.com, and at the Sewing and Quilting Center.com, also MonticelloCollege.org. Well, I, uh, <laughs> unless you've been living in a cave with your eyes shut and your fingers in your ears, you have probably noticed there's a pretty big realignment taking place in society. In fact, Canada is probably the the biggest uh, example of what this looks like at the moment. And it's uh, it's scary, and at the same time, it's kind of exhilarating. I, I'm still kind of walking that fine line between, you know, being encouraged that, wow, people really aren't taking this anymore versus 
ooh, this could get this could get ugly. Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute has an excellent essay explaining how, thanks to the growing partnership between big business and big government, we are seeing a clash, a clash of the patricians versus the plebeians. He says, when I was a kid, and the same with my parents when they were young, you could count on certain fundamentals in politics. For instance, the Chamber of Commerce represented business, and business generally represented or favored free enterprise. He says, not always, but mostly. Small businesses could become big, big could become small, but they generally opposed socialism, big government, regulation, and high taxes. Now, for this reason, he says they generally supported the Republican Party. But he notes it was also a time of class malleability, with people moving in and out and up and down. There were always gaps between middle, rich, and poor, but they weren't as wide as now, and there was a healthy rotation among them. Jeffrey Tucker says in the last 10 years, and accelerating dramatically in the last three, this has changed. Big business consolidated and centered on tech and finance. Then it became entrenched. The laptoppers educated at woke universities ported their values into the workplace, gained managerial control, and deployed HR departments as their mechanism of control. The politics of these industries followed, and now it's the base of the Democrats. That's a pretty good explanation. Now he says it's strange because I'm old enough to remember when people when to remember rather when everyone on the left defended civil liberties, freedom of speech, the working classes, schooling, small business, the poor, public accommodations for everyone, peace and democracy. And they opposed witch hunts and segregation and class privilege and big business, war and dictatorship, or so it seemed. He says anyone paying a modicum of attention to modern political trends knows that this is no longer true. That accounts for why so many on the left are disaffected, and that includes many writers at Brownstone. Jeffrey Tucker says the evidence is everywhere. The apostasy of Noam Chomsky and Naomi Klein come to mind, but sealed by two reliably left publications, The Nation and Mother Jones. The former's push for forever lockdowns has been relentless, while the latter just launched an anti-trucker campaign against what everyone used to think were basic civil liberties. Both sites are hard to navigate for all the pop-ups and the commercial pushes. Now, he says, all of this happened almost imperceptibly sometime after the turn of the millennium and set the stage for the rise of Trump in all his working-class appeal. That cemented the deal. The Republicans lost the backing of the most influential sectors of economic life, and the Democrats could count on the backing of the most highly capitalized and powerful players in the whole information economy, which is to say that the Democrats are the party of the rich, and the entrenched rich somehow found themselves on the side of lockdowns and mandates. Now, the Democratic Party was built by people who have for many decades pretended to be champions of the poor, the vulnerable, the workers, the proletariat, and so on. They built huge systems to address them and serve them. Then it changed. They became champions of closures. They shut the schools and churches and wrecked small businesses. Their policies imposed unconscionable burdens on the very people they claimed to support. Here's a comment from Jacob Siegel of The Tablet. Quote, It's not simply that the rich have gotten richer, though that's certainly true as, Americans, as America's billionaires added $2.1 trillion to their net worth during the pandemic. It's Silicon Valley corporations with close ties to the Democratic Party, like Google, that have benefited the most. While the tech companies have few actual employees compared to older productive industries, their largesse now directly subsidizes whole sectors of the professional class economy, 
including journalism. Individual professionals may not have become richer during the pandemic, but unlike hundreds of thousands of American workers who lost their jobs, many of whom worked in the small businesses that were shuttered over the past two years, their employment was mostly secure. Perhaps it's not surprising then that those professionals would instinctively internalize COVID policies that enriched their tech oligarch patrons as a personal victory and defense of their own status, end quote. Wow. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, as a result, the Democrats have massively alienated their voter base, leaving them only with strongly reliable support among the elite classes. And what of the Republicans? Well, he says, I can sum it up in a word, truckers. The policies of the last two years relied on them fundamentally, but forgot about them otherwise. They were pushed too far in all countries, and now they have said, enough. They are in revolt as a proxy not only for transportation workers, but the whole of the working class, including independent businesses. And don't forget that the number of excess deaths among small businesses during the pandemic in the U.S. was 200,000. Now, one of the most striking facts is that 41% of black-owned businesses were destroyed. It really amounted to a kind of slaughter that has fundamentally shaken the whole commercial sector in the world and, or rather, in the U.S. and all over the world. So what you see on the streets of Ottawa today, but also in D.C. and Jerusalem, is the result of this realignment. Jeffrey Tucker says, it feels like class war because it is. Now, it's not the one Karl Marx dreamed of where the workers and the peasants rise up against the rich to demand their surplus value. It's the rich working with the government, media, and tech to put down the demands of the less privileged in society who are calling for a restoration of simple freedom and rights. Among the less privileged are workers, small businesses, moms pushed out of professional life during lockdowns, religious people who still have an attachment to their communities, and generally people who value their personal independence. All this kindling was in place when vaccination mandates finally lit the fire. Forcibly jabbing people with a medicine they do not believe they need is a good way to alienate people forever. They might go along to keep their jobs, but they will come out on the other side more furious than ever. And that fury is boiling all around the world today. Some mayors are responding by getting rid of all controls and mandates that happened in D.C. this week without explanation. The real reasons likely traced to the hospitality and restaurant industry in D.C., which had been devastated by the mandates that have driven so many people to surrounding states. In addition, the large African-American community in D.C. seriously resented the mandates. Among D.C. whites, 71% are vaccinated, but that's true of only 56% of blacks. The appalling reality is that nearly half the blacks in D.C. were banned from public accommodation under the mandates. That's truly untenable. We'll likely see New York and Boston flip, too. Meanwhile, other governments are taking the totalitarian route. Justin Trudeau in Canada has invoked emergency powers to become the would-be dictator over the whole country. Long an admirer of China's authoritarian one-party rule, his new dictatorship seems completely untenable, but we'll see. We thought that rule by the Chinese Communist Party looked untenable in light of the masses gathered at Tiananmen Square, and we know how that ended. Will Trudeau attempt a Tiananmen solution, and to top it off, most of the country is on the verge of experiencing double-digit inflation, a policy that is utterly wrecking the poor and reducing the purchasing power of everything. 
Despite all the promises and predictions that the worst would be over by now, the worst certainly lies ahead. People yesterday were once again pretending to be shocked at the producer price index, which saw a one-month increase of 1% and a 9.7% increase year over year. That can only translate to ever higher prices for the consumer. I got to tap the brakes here because we are up against our own commercial break. But I'm going to come back to Jeffrey Tucker's column. Of course, it is linked in the show notes, which you'll find at thebrianhideshow.com. If you'd like to subscribe and have me uh, send you a copy via email, click the subscribe button in my show notes. I will safeguard your email address. It will not be sold or shared with anybody else. It stays just between you and me. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to mention one of my sponsors, that being LifesavingFood.com. With all the uncertainty around us today, it does your heart good. It will, it will bring peace to your mind to look around and realize, hey, I have a store of supplies where, if necessary, I can stand on my own and I'm not at the whim of a stranger's kindness or I'm not at the whim of some benevolent bureaucrat offering to, quote, help me. That's the beauty of having food storage, of having emergency preparedness, of having skills, of having self-reliance. Lifesavingfood.com is to help you with that food storage part. 25-year shelf life, great variety of foods. By, by the way, if you have somebody in your home who's uh, gluten intolerant, check them out. They've got some great packages of gluten-free food storage. So, you know, the person who's <laughs> sitting there looking at all that wheat going, yeah, that's great. You got your food, but I can't eat any of it. No, you have options. And you get a 20% discount, free shipping, and no sales tax. So there's a little added incentive. Lifesavingfood.com. So I'm sharing this article from Jeffrey Tucker, the patricians versus the plebeians, the realignment. And you can see this realignment taking place. I, I don't know why. My wife uh, switched on CBC last night. So as I was sitting down and was, you know, pulling together some show notes and just going over a few things for, uh, for today's program, I had uh, the CBC playing in the background, and it just reminded me why I don't watch mainstream media. I mean, look, American media, especially mainstream media, is, is so incredibly biased. We're going to talk about that actually coming up here in a few minutes. But what's happening in Canada, the disinformation, the just full-on spin and prop- <clears throat> propagandizing on the part of uh, the Canadian media, Whew. This realignment is a very real thing. And, you know, with inflation surging, it's, it's hurting the people who make less than $40,000 or $40,000 to $99,000. They are, they are experiencing some real hardship, especially severe hardship in the people who make less than $40,000 a year. Jeffrey Tucker, by the way, has a nice chart in his article that, that shows this. And he shares it because he says this may be the most portentous moment in our political lives. The commercial elite, the new patrician class, is drifting full fascist, while the plebeians, the ancient designation of commoners, are pushing for uncompromised freedom. 
Now, that's an upheaval that realigns just about everything. And uh, as as we're going to talk about here in a minute, when the attack is being made economically, or at least through control over your money, or what you think is your money, suddenly things start to get very serious. Jeffrey Tucker says, all of this should remind us that the history of liberalism in the traditional sense, meaning freedom, is a history of revolt against elites. It was a brief moment in history in the 20th century when liberal values reliably overlapped with the interests of big business. And hence, why there remains such confusion in the world today over what is liberal, what is conservative, what's left and what's right. Lockdowns and mandates have reshuffled political alliances, it would appear. They've created a clearer demarcation than we've seen in our lifetimes between the Zoom class patricians and the freedom-loving plebeians. Engaging that struggle with intelligence and clarity is what's necessary to recapture the cultural affection for and the political practice of the liberty we once knew. If you haven't subscribed to the Brownstone Institute, by the way, you should really consider it, or at least you should you should check out some of the articles that they publish. They have been such a reasonable voice, even though they've only, I don't even think they've even been around for a year. But they have some truly remarkable writers and I think a very principled take on some of the, the more hot button issues. You know, you can you can tell you can tell the level of sophistication or at least the level of um, principle that is is involved in uh, a particular media outlet by how much, you know, to what are they appealing? Are they appealing to your anger? Are they appealing to your hatred or your fears? Or are they trying to appeal to, you know, your, your sense of right and wrong or your sense of principle? These guys take the high road. And we need more. We need more media outlets doing that. Speaking of media outlets, I have a question for you. What has happened to objective journalism? And I don't just mean in America, but I mean in every nation. Watching the CBC report and the way that they reported on, you know, the the Canadian Freedom Convoy, it's very clear. If a person only gets their news from mainstream media, they are absolutely going to see the world through a, a very distorted lens. Now, look, I understand that's also true. If a person only gets their news through Alex Jones, that's probably true as well. The point is, you and I have to be able to access multiple sources. We have to be able to choose for ourselves and trust our own decision-making and our own thinking enough to sort fact from fiction. That's one of the reasons this program exists, is to try to, to encourage and to inspire people. Take ownership of your worldview. Examine as many sources as you can, even the ones you don't really want to. See what they're saying, then weigh it out for yourself. Now, as far as what's happened to objective journalism, came across a Twitter thread yesterday that was so interesting. And I wanted to share this with you, and thank you for the app uh, thread roll-up, or what's it called here, Thread Reader app, where you can roll up a, an entire thread into a nice, easy URL. I've got this in the show notes, but this is from a journalist by the name of John W. DeFeo. And he says, The COVID-19 pandemic has laid bare many shortcomings and frailties in our society, but he says, for me, none has been more damaging than the collapse of objective journalism. Now, he says, I've worked in newsrooms for most of my career. I'd like to share how my experiences explain my view. First, he says, let me say that this threat is not an indictment of journalists, but rather an indictment of a system that produces bad journalism. The strange thing about systems is that they perpetuate and defend themselves, even when the participants of the system don't agree. 
I think that's true. So I wanted to know more. He goes on to say, yes, there are bad journalists. I should know I was one of them. But he says, I had the benefit of good role models early in my career. I'll never forget the time I presented a single source article to my editor. And he said, what the F is this? An advertisement? Bringing me to unreasonable story counts. He says, on average, the journalists I've worked with had an expectation of producing three to four stories per day, and one editor had four or five writers beneath. Now, this was a corporate demand, not an editorial one, but it doesn't allow time for top-quality work. There's also a lack of technical editors. Editors with a STEM background or a specific technical specialty are expensive, and they're in short supply. He says, I've seen a single technical story that required approximately one week of editing time. Many publications can't afford this. Words edited, numbers not. So in the absence of a technical editor, many stories are edited for clarity, but not for data integrity. And the results are most often seen when millions, billions, trillions are confused, or when bad metric conversions slip by. Then you have page view targets. In addition to story counts, many journalists are encouraged or directly incentivized to reach page view targets. Now doing so has an impact on story selection. A story that's a plain statement of fact, presented without sensationalism, will on average receive 400 to 1,200 visits. That's a guaranteed financial loss for an ad-supported news website. So to increase the readership of a straight news story, there are emotional triggers that can be leveraged. Headlines that include, why you should, or why we must. And writers learn these tactics by exposure, or they're taught directly. Then there's search engine optimization. Many organizations rely on search engine traffic to sustain financial viability. He says, I worked in this field for years, and I believe that it's diametrically opposed to acceptable journalism for two major reasons. Confirmation bias in story selection. See, people who use search engines are, with their search data, broadcasting what they want to read. It's reverse broadcasting. News organizations get the message and then they prepare content with a higher odd of success or higher odds of success of getting you to click on it. And then there's rewrites for marketability. He says reporters and editors are losing control of their own words even within the body content of articles. Some of the articles he wrote years ago, he says, have been edited to include marketing buzzwords and dubious links. Plus, we make what we sell. He says a media sales team unchecked will close almost any deal that will result in financial benefit for the sales team, not the news organization. As a result, journalists are forced to create content to fulfill questionable campaigns. And sometimes sales bullies these reporters. He says, I was once assigned a story that, unbeknownst to me, called into question the business model of an advertiser. The head of sales screamed at me in front of the entire newsroom. Luckily, my editor defended me, but he says, not all do that. Plus, you get bullying from external PR. Says, once I published the compensation packages of highly paid CEOs. Now, this was a matter of public record, but a powerful PR executive who represented one of those CEOs demanded the story be retracted and for me to be fired. This is a pretty good explanation of what's been going on in journalism. There's more to this. We'll come back to it on the other side of the break. I mean, I feel a little bit of sympathy. Clearly, there are some people within the mainstream media whose hands are tied. Maybe it's not an option for them to quit and go start their own, you know, independent news outlet. All I know is I've restricted my intake of MSM content, and I feel better for it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Talking about what happened to objective journalism, John W. DeFeo has a really interesting take on this because he was a journalist, spent most of his career in newsrooms. And he talks about why we are seeing it's it's a systemic problem more so than simply, yes, every journalist out there is evil and has an agenda. And I think this is a pretty fair way to approach it. There are some journalists who I think are, uh, shall we say, more susceptible to selling their soul in a buyer's market. But it's the system. He talks about bullying from big tech, for instance. He says, I've seen companies like Google threaten to remove major revenue sources from a news organization unless a particular story was unpublished. Now, the reasons were often silly, like that elbow looked like a breast, but the implications are sinister. There's bullying from lawyers. He says, some of the best journalism I've seen firsthand was responded to with massive eight-figure lawsuits. Now, not every news organization has legal protections, insurance, and a general counsel who stands behind good journalism. Then there's violent threats. He says, in addition to lawsuits, some of the best journalism I've seen firsthand was responded to with threats of death or rape. Credible or not, these threats are terrifying, and they take an emotional toll. By the way, if you want to see what that looks like on an individual level, just look at all the death threats that Antifa has issued against Andy No. Yeah, he takes a lot of flack, but it's because he is right over the target, and he's shining a light where a whole bunch of little black-clad cockroaches do not want that light shining. There are also threats of revoked access. Invitations to conferences and press briefings are in short supply. In fact, it can take years to earn an invite. On the other hand, a single critical story could result in revoked credentials or blackballing of a journalist or publication. There's a literal lack of boundaries. Many newsrooms have open floor plans that can result in undue and often unintended pressure. A CEO leans on the desk of a 21-year-old reporter and asks, why hasn't such and such been covered yet? The story's often written, like it or not. Then there's the removal of comment sections. Almost every major error, he says, that he corrected was first exposed to him in the comments on an article that he published. Plus, corrections kill momentum. And he's measured that directly. Corrections are embarrassing. So they do soft corrections in order to avoid a retraction. They bury corrections. Bad info gets uh, 50 to 100 times the exposure that good does. And he goes on to the inability to hire talent, the shock job, ex- jo- the shop, <laughs> shock jock exception, sensational feedback style, or effects of apathy. This is just a remarkable thread with John W. DeFeo. Again, I've got a link to this in the show notes. It's not going to make you love the mainstream media, or, you know, maybe it will. I don't know. It certainly gave me a little bit of sympathy, though, for those good journalists out there who are laboring under almost impossible conditions. And speaking of the mainstream media, why are they not talking about the economy these days? Got an article here from the, from the Z-Man. It's titled Storm Clouds. He says, you know, if you're over a certain age, something you'll remember is that the economy used to be a central part of the daily news feed. People talked about the economy because it was always in the mass media. Now, of course, you had lots of news about finance and uh, especially the stock market. And this dovetailed with the stories about the federal budget and the resulting deficits. People used to talk about the federal debt because it was a number that was easy to conceptualize. But all this has been pushed aside in favor of other topics now. Look at the front page of the New York Times on any day. The one thing you are not going to see is news about the debt or even the economy. 
Instead, it's foreign affairs or maybe a long story on the fight against Trumpism. Washington Post is pretty much just a copy and paste operation relying on press releases from government agencies. It's as if the economy and related topics no longer exist. Now, the Z-Man says one reason people are not talking about the economy over lunch is the mass media has been told to drop it. The real power of corporate media is the power to ignore, which is what they've done with economics. When was the last time the New York Times did a big story on the finances of the government? You know, there was a time when this was a stock feature. People used to know the size of the federal debt because it was a number made meaningful by the media. Another reason econ talk has moved to the fringes of the public debate is the people in charge launched a culture war against the people back in the Bush years. That's when the great shift in media focus started. Bush became Hitler and the left reorganized itself around the Great Crusade against fascism. This academic psychosis started to spill into the retail politics of the left. And by fascism, they mean anything and anyone that opposes the grab bag of incoherent beliefs now called the left. The great leaving alone of the economy was also made possible by the fact that the system seemed to be on autopilot. The mortgage meltdown of 2008 did not result in breadlines or mass unemployment. The accounting scandals from the prior decade had no impact on daily life. We've had several market crashes over the last 20 years. No traders have leaped from their office windows. Like war, the gyrations of the economy have been made for television events. But he says the truth is the economy is something people care about, and it's something they can know about without the media. If you are a dirt person... You've been watching your food bill tick up over the last year or so. You've chatted about this with people at work and with friends at parties. Food inflation is becoming a feature of life. Now gas prices are starting to creep into the conversation. The salons and mass media may not notice it, but everyone else sees it when they gas up. The last time inflation was a thing, Reagan was going around the country while running for president saying, inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. This sounds way over the top, but it resonated with people because at one level he was right. Crime is about social trust, and the crime of inflation robs people of their trust in the basic functioning of society. Inflation puts everything about economic life up for grabs. And compounding things now is the fact that the core demographic responsible for there being an economy has lost all trust in the government. The inflation numbers recently posted were met with scornful laughs. Everyone knows they're undergunning the inflation numbers. Because these are the people who lied about everything for the last decade or so. The same people who wear ceremonial face gear and lie about the COVID problem are now reporting 7% inflation. Right. (laughs) He says this is why inflation should be the number one topic on people's minds as we proceed through the long, dark winter Biden has inflicted on us. Even the fake numbers the government released say that something must be done. Now, the Fed has committed to tightening the money supply starting in March. History makes this clear. This will result in in a recession and an uptick in unemployment. Put another way, the bad news on the economy is just getting started. How will the public respond to the first real recession in decades? How will they respond to the rambling about it by a geriatric old fool who can barely put two sentences together? How will Americans respond to the stream of managerial sociopaths that will be sent out to insult our intelligence? How will the media respond? They've been the Greek chorus for the system for so long. Are they even capable of dealing with a practical issue at this point? The long vacation from reality that our ruling class has enjoyed since the end of the Cold War is about to end. 
Now, they can stick to whatever theories they remember from their grad school seminar on diversity and equity, but the reality of the human condition has not changed. The ruling class of any society is responsible for the general welfare of the people in that society. When they fail, they are held accountable. This is an immutable law of human organization that never goes away. This is why the situation in Canada bears watching. Trudeau is a simpleton who has no business being in charge of anything. Contrary to the old chestnuts about democracy, he's not the ruler the people deserve. He reflects the competence of the ruling class that installed him in office. The people who thought this feckless pansy was right for the job are so far proving to be incapable of managing this trucker crisis. They've made Canada the first English-speaking dictatorship. Now, the American people are far more docile and subservient than Canadians. But until a few weeks ago, people assumed the Canadians were a beaten people. Well, it turns out there's still some life left in Canadians, which suggests there may be a flicker of life left in Americans as well. Put enough pressure on people, and they will find the courage to rebel against their masters. Inflation, recession, wide-scale unrest is the sort of pressure Americans may need to find their spine again. The Z-Man says the holiday from reality is over. We are about to enter into a period in which serious topics with real meaning return to the fore. The reckless sissies and addle-minded old fools who've been playing make-believe for the past few decades will now have to face a real crisis. Similarly, a lethargic and prostrate people will now have to remember how to stand up for themselves again. It will not be long before the last few years of the culture war seem like a golden age of tranquility. I know that sounds ominous, but wow. That's, that's some clarity right there. And hopefully, you know, you take it in the spirit that's, that it's intended. This is not about, let's get you fearful, let's get you all ginned up on, you know, ah, the economy is coming apart, the, the sky is falling. I like how he puts it, our vacation from reality is simply coming to an end. Now, personally, there is a time when I would have said, no, give me the comfortable lies. That's what I would prefer. But that's not where I am today. And I suspect that's not where you are either, or you wouldn't be listening to this program. I'm willing to face the hard truths. I'm actually willing to do the hard things. And I think you probably are as well. So let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get straight on our principles. And let's move forward with some confidence. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is not a program where you can come for a daily dispensing of here's what you're supposed to think. Nope, I'm not about that. This is a program for people who have honest hearts, humble spirits, and sincerely want to know the truth, but they also want to think for themselves. So... I'll give you some ideas. I'll I'll point you in the right direction on a few things, or at least what I hope is the right direction on a few things, but it's up to you as to whether or not you adopt these ideas or these ideals as your own. After all, it's your mind. All I'm trying to do is convince you that there's a war on for your mind, and you've got to plant your flag and claim it as your own. 
and think clearly and independently about the world around you. Got some great sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis. They include MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. So I got to warn you, I'm going to start with something kind of heavy here. But after watching what's going on in Canada and the uh, the increasing ratcheting up of um, coercion on the part of the ruling class in Canada, I'm very concerned for the Canadian people. And I think that uh, we have seen people willing to sacrifice deeply, not for, you know, the chance to lord power over other people, but simply to to reclaim their basic freedoms and liberties. And in response, their government has used every opportunity to proclaim them as terrorists and to to pass new laws and new legislation, making things that were previously perfectly legal and peaceful suddenly illegal. And now we're having to deal with this criminal protest and these criminal ideals and these criminal acts. And yeah, it's stuff that you made criminal by the stroke of a pen. So spare me the melodrama, okay? Hey, you want to just maybe come back to reality? But it's chilling to see. And it, and it really, it, it sets the stage for confrontation where there needn't be confrontation. But it appears the ruling class is not about to back down. And that means the choices before us are becoming more limited. Brandon Smith, writing for alt-market.us, has, a, has a, an essay titled Separation or Purge. Sharing a society with the political left is impossible. He says, of all the social drivers in history, the concept of freedom is the most powerful and fascinating. There are many observable objective truths in the world, and it's always important to recognize them. But the idea of freedom is more rare because it's a universal subjective truth, meaning it exists inherently in the majority of individuals. We don't learn it. We just know it instinctively. Most of us share the experience, but there's no microscope or telescope in existence that can observe that experience. We just have to trust it or perhaps have faith. Freedom is not taught to us. We are born with the idea already hardwired. If anything, it has to be conditioned out of us. We can see the after effects of the human experience of freedom and the great upheavals that occur when our societies become too rigid, too controlled, too authoritarian. Some will argue that tyrants have no concept of freedom, and this debunks the notion that it's an inherent psychological quality. But this is a misconception. He says many tyrants love freedom, but only for themselves. Like an obsessive compulsive, when the average authoritarian sees free movement within the rest of society, all he sees is chaos that needs to be micromanaged. He is so mentally unhinged by the existence of independent activity that he's compelled to crush it and impose his brand of order. Wow. Mr. Trudeau, this seems to be talking about you. If you want to understand the thinking process of the political left today, Brandon Smith says, here's where you need to start. They believe only certain special people deserve to have freedom or deserve to live, and they, of course, are part of that group. The rest of us can't be trusted with freedom because we think the wrong way, so we need to be corralled and fenced in. Now, this is not to say that some structure within society is wrong. It can be a good thing, but not when it's imposed by an elitist minority of psychopathic people. There will never be any justice within such a system. No fairness, no true progress. Authoritarianism is the opposite of progress. It is the antithesis, and yet these people call themselves progressives. 
Freedom requires boldness and courage because it demands personal responsibility. When you are free to make your own decisions, you are also free to fail. And only you can be blamed for your own failures. Now, that's a terrifying notion for most leftists and collectivists because they believe that they are owed a positive outcome regardless of their actions or merit. They believe it's their right to be taken care of by others if they're incapable of taking care of themselves. But this is not equality. This is equity. This is stealing wealth and opportunity from more worthy people in order to artificially inflate others that put in little or no effort. Meritocracy is the most equal system in existence because it is freedom-based. Equality of opportunity is the epitome of fairness. Equity of outcome is the epitome of injustice. That would actually make a really good bumper sticker, by the way. Leftists hyper-focus on race, skin color, and sexual identity for this very reason. They're desperately searching for a way to circumvent the obstacles of freedom, merit, and individualism. If everything in society can be reduced down to race, then personal accomplishment and responsibility are no longer relevant. In the mind of the leftist, if certain people are inherently oppressed and others are inherently oppressive, then equality of opportunity is not enough, and equity of outcome must be enforced. Making everything about group status thereby erases freedom and meritocracy cannot function. All a person needs to do is say, I'm oppressed, therefore I'm entitled. And if they meet the broad leftist criteria, then they're handed a livelihood or success simply because they exist. Brandon Smith says, I saw a commercial on YouTube a week ago for yet another social justice documentary titled Everything's Going to Be All White. Once again, attempting to pontificate on our supposed reign of dominance across every facet of the globe. And he says, I couldn't help but think this entire narrative is nothing more than a cowardly attempt to deflect responsibility. Now, yes, it's also an attempt to divide and conquer Western nations. But how many people are actually watching these race hyped documentary and TV shows unironically? According to the stats and reviews, there aren't very many. Nearly every claim made in these productions is based on previously debunked social justice misrepresentations of history from books like White Fragility and movements like the 1619 Project. If you really want to get an accurate representation of U.S. history in particular and the limited role slavery played in terms of modern social outcomes, then I suggest reading the works of Thomas Sowell a brilliant black American economist and historian with no bias in his analysis. Slavery is a mere footnote in our past, not an all-encompassing determinant of our present and future, as leftists like to argue. There is no legal slavery in America, and there is no one alive today in America who has experienced race-based slavery or that has been affected by it. Slavery and racism were far more pervasive in nations of brown and black people in history. In fact, some of these countries still engage in various forms of slavery today. If you want to experience actual racism as a black or brown person, travel to a country like China. See how long it takes before you're kicked out of an establishment for your skin color. White people are not the problem. People who disrespect the benefits of freedom are the problem regardless of their skin. Brandon Smith says what we need to understand is that race and oppression propaganda is not really rooted in race and oppression. It appeals to a certain subset of our population because it offers them a way to rationalize their lack of merit and their fears of freedom and consequence. If you can blame white people for all your problems and have this be believed, then the temptation to fail is increased because there are no consequences. Why work hard to make something of yourself if you can do nothing and be rewarded anyway? 
By extension, the racism blame game is alluring to many people in society because it can be used as a weapon to harm political enemies. When leftists complain about the evils of white people, what they're really talking about are the evils of conservatives and others that do not conform to leftist ideology. Now, they rarely come right out and say it, but one day the documentaries will switch from dear white people to dear conservatives. The fight has never been about race. It's always been about ideals and principles and eliminating the ideals that can contradict the leftist mission. This is why they are so consistently hostile to anyone conservative, even more so if that person is black. The leftist agenda is all about diminishing freedom and societal respect for freedom by whatever means necessary. Everything is about management. Everything is about uh, centralization. Everything is about control. And conservatives and many moderates stand in direct opposition to this. I got to tap the brakes here because we're coming up on our, our break. But again, this is an article from Brandon Smith. Separation or purge, sharing a society with the political left is impossible. I mean, I don't want to believe that, uh, hey, really, we have no no choice here, but uh, so it's going to come to blows. But sometimes it sure looks like that's the direction that we're heading. So in interest of helping you better understand the lay of the land, regardless of what your worldview is, I offer this as consideration. We'll come back to Brandon Smith's essay. It's included in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I warned you at the beginning of this hour that, uh, yeah, this is a fairly heavy essay that I'm sharing from Brandon Smith, but it's the elephant in the room. And I'm, I'm trying to do this in a way that doesn't sensationalize or spittle fling or otherwise, you know, try to get you worked up. But the question in front of us is separation or purge. We are rapidly seeing a uh, drawing of the lines. And it's, it's very clear that uh, right now there are, there are a couple of mutually exclusive worldviews competing for control of our world. And Brandon Smith says, you know, a common mistake among newbies in the liberty movement is when they try to explain away leftist actions by bringing up the false left-right paradigm. Now, he's talking about people like me because I I don't think that paradigm is nearly as clear-cut as possible. But here's what he says. He says, these people don't understand what this actually means. The left-right paradigm exists at the top of the social and political pyramid. Top political and corporate leaders pretend to be in one party or the other, while in reality they're all working together and implementing the same policies. At the bottom of the pyramid among regular people, there is... No false left-right paradigm. There is a very real left-right division. Now, I do see his point, especially when he says this is undeniable in the face of COVID and vaccine mandates. He says, for the longest time, I've heard people claim that when the push for authoritarianism in the U.S. arrived, many conservatives would simply go along with it. Yet today, numerous conservative red states are fighting the mandates tooth and nail, while the leftist blue states have been suffocated by them. In fact, red states have acted as beacons of rebellion for the world. Without them, it's unlikely that the Supreme Court would have dropped Biden's federal vax mandates. 
the threat of war is tangible if such mandates are ever instituted, and the Supreme Court knows this. Now, Brandon Smith says, I've had people ask me in the past, why haven't there been any major actions on the part of conservatives in the U.S. against the mandates? And he says, I have to break it to them that there are no mandates in conservative places, and there haven't been for at least 18 months. None. Zero. Zip. We don't need to protest because we stopped the mandates before they could take hold. He says, as I've said from the very beginning of the pandemic response, if even a handful of states or countries can remain free from COVID controls, they will inspire people around the world and act as proof that the mandates are pointless. Today, as America continues to beat back the COVID agenda, there are mass protests in Canada and the UK has cut most of their COVID restrictions. Freedom spreads like wildfire once the flames are sparked. Now, leftists hate this. COVID, like the fantasy of institutional racism, is a tempting vehicle to forward their ideology. If you can convince the public that they're a constant threat to themselves and each other, then it's a small matter to convince them the government needs to step in and protect society from itself and from the notions of freedom that might put society at risk. Without COVID as a foil, the political left has nothing. So they continue to perpetuate the lie that the virus is an imminent threat to the majority of people when the average infection fatality rate is a tiny 0.27%. So the real question here is, when a group of people hate freedom this much, how is it possible to coexist with them? And Brandon Smith says the answer is we can't. Anyone who defends merit and liberty will always be a target of those that despise merit and liberty. They will never stop. They will forever be looking for ways to undermine both. If COVID mandates and race-based propaganda don't work, well, then they'll search for another tool to do the job. If one can say anything good about leftists, it's it's that they don't give up even when they are clearly outmatched and beaten. But the problem is that this dedication to their cause is not based in love or truth, but zealotry and cultism. They are jihadists and nothing, not logic, not facts, not reason, not moral principle, will convince them of the error of their ways. So what's the solution? Well, he says one could suggest that we make it easy for them to leave. After all, if they hate America as much as they say they do, then why are they still living here? Probably because most other places in the world are abysmal in comparison. But if we keep them around, they will drag the country down to the same terrible level. It's a conundrum. Beyond that, he says, what country would want them? Social justice is seen as a cancer in many countries, and an injection of leftist migrants would be a disaster for them economically and socially even in nations that claim to support leftist models. And he says most leftists would also refuse to leave anyway because they believe they should decide the path of America's future. As much as they hate this country, they see themselves as its saviors. Now, there is is the option of internal separation, which he says I see as preferable. This is already happening in many forms as conservatives and moderates from blue states relocate by the millions to red states. For instance, he says, in my home state of Montana, there has been an influx of migrants from blue states, and every single new person I've talked to is a conservative prepper whose family lived in a blue state for generations, and they finally got fed up. The vast majority of people moving are conservative-minded, and they are now congregating. Why not carry this process forward to its natural conclusion? Red states break from blue states, and red counties break from blue state control, and we live our lives the way we see fit. Let the leftists continue with their draconian economic and political models and see how well that goes for them. He says, I guarantee they'll be in financial ruins within a decade. 
the list of the most indebted places in the country is dominated by blue states. And they will be begging to return to a union with red states, except for the zealots who would lose influence as they continue to fail. But he says this will not happen peacefully because, again, leftists cannot tolerate free activity. Their OCD will not allow them to be content with living in a collectivist state of their own. All states must be collectivist before they are satisfied. People are property to them, property of the collective, and people who are property cannot be allowed to make decisions without oversight. There are people who will naively argue that the establishment wants America divided and separation plays into their hands. Well, guess what? There is no reconciliation with tyrants. And trying to maintain a union with them is the pinnacle of idiocy. He just comes right out and says it. There is no union. It's a figment of your imagination. He says, I think the establishment prefers that we stay within the box, that we continue wasting all our time and attention on trying to hold a system together that is corrupt beyond repair. We will never be allowed to peacefully repair what has been broken. And unfortunately, the only path this leaves is one of violence. Leftists will have to be forced out of positions of power and influence and removed from our culture like a cancerous tumor is cut from the body to save the body. Now, he says, I don't think this should be the obvious choice. I don't want it to be. What I'm saying is leftists and their partners in government and the corporate world will force the issue because they cannot help it. Like the story of the scorpion and the frog, it's in their nature to destroy. They will continue to push and steal and threaten and abuse until they get the inevitable response of a punch in the teeth. Then they will play the victim like they always do. This crying and gaslighting will have to be ignored. In the end, these people cannot be tolerated in a free culture, and their power to harm and enslave others must be removed one way or another. I mean, that's, that's some pretty stark reality, right? I get it. That's, that's not something that gives me warm fuzzies either. So let me pose this question to you. What can we do? I'm not proposing the course of action, and, and even if I did, it, it's not going to sound like, well, you get yourself a gun, and you get yourself plenty of bullets, and, you know, I, I think you should be prepared for, for whatever may be coming, but more than anything, I think the most tangible steps that you and I can take our number one, top of the list importance, get right with God. Now, some people may, you know, oh, come on. What is God going to do here? I'm just talking at the individual level, okay? So I'm not saying God is the answer to all of our political problems. But if you are looking for direction as to how you personally should go about living your life in a time of upheaval, and change and crisis. Getting right with your maker is the surest way to make sure that you are in a place where your conscience is not conflicted and you know how to proceed. Second thing I would recommend, get close to the people around you. I don't know a better way to say this. I was going to say build your tribe, but I mean really, truly. Reconcile with your loved ones. Build relationships with your neighbors within your community. These are the people you're going to want to count on if times are difficult. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to say a couple nice things about uh, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George, Utah. Now, they may be located in St. George, but if you are looking to purchase a home anywhere in the state of Utah, this is who you need to talk to. Talk to Heather Turner and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Call her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, go by her office at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Why should you go with her? Well, frankly, because she has decades of experience in doing what she does. She has an organization that gives her the kind of clout you need to get the loan you need without delay. That's probably the most important reason right there. You cannot dawdle when it comes to getting your financing in order. Talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. All right, I got a couple rapid-fire things to go through here today. Um, I I don't think I've ever seen anything quite as uh, as interesting and perhaps even sad as the Biden administration's agitation for Russia's going to invade Ukraine. And, you know, it's it sure seems like there there's this... I mean, they were t- talking dates and times. They're going to do it on this day, about this time, and so far, just crickets. Now, this is not to say that there's no tension between Russia and Ukraine. There are some things that are that are definitely causing friction there. The thing I don't understand is why why is that our business? Why is that something we need to be in the middle of? I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna use an old Texas saying here, cleaned up a little bit uh, uh, for the broadcast audience, but you know the idea that you know the U.S. really needs to get involved in the uh, Russian Ukraine conflict. Uh, that's that's like saying yeah yeah they they need to go poop and fall backwards. Come on, how how dumb is that? I do have an interesting article here from Jordan Schachtel. The the Ukraine mirage consists of Biden taking credit for stopping his own manufactured crisis. Jordan Schachtel really has a pretty solid take on this. He says it's better to win a war without firing a shot, or is it better to win a war without firing a shot, or Rather, convince people that you stopped a war that never really had a chance of actually starting. Well, he says, with poll numbers continuing to tank and midterm elections right around the corner, the Biden administration desperately needs a win. It appears they're enacting a bold strategy that involves first manifesting a crisis and then proceeding to take credit for solving the non-existent crisis they created. For weeks, the White House has been telling us, without evidence that the Russian military is on the verge of uh, launching a massive land and air invasion into Ukraine. Citing apparent troop movements within Russia's own territory on their border with Ukraine, the White House has continually signaled that Russia is swelling its numbers for an imminent attack. Now, the Kremlin, for its part, has remained pretty consistent in denying the allegation that it wants war in Ukraine. Though Russia has, in recent years, annexed parts of Ukraine, and we cannot dismiss the possibility that Moscow may annex more land. It's a territory with a long history of Russian control. But Moscow has, Moscow has fervently denied the allegation that a massive military invasion was on the table. Russia's successful Crimea annexation was met with almost no resistance. But we were continually told that this time, Vladimir Putin would seek pure, unfettered violence. Now, the United States government seems to be the only entity in the world that has advanced the imminent invasion narrative. Throughout Ukraine itself and the rest of Europe, nation-states showcased through their behavior a posture of being unconvinced that anything significant was going to happen on the border, even as the State Department urged Americans to evacuate Kiev. 
Ukrainians living right on the Russian border region just went about their days without much concern. Biden National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan actually uh, had some thoughts on this as well. He's a longtime political operative for Hillary Clinton and claimed in a recent briefing to reporters that Russia was ready to go full throttle into Ukraine. Sullivan said if a Russian attack on Ukraine proceeds, it is likely to begin with aerial bombing and missile attacks that could obviously kill civilians without regard to their nationality. A subsequent ground invasion would involve the onslaught of a massive force. Wow, that's so dramatic. State Department spokesperson Ned Price continued to perpetuate the the narrative, claiming that Russia was creating a false flag pretext for war in the Ukraine. Now, beyond that, the supposed secret U.S. intelligence reports laundered through the corporate press warned of an even more brutal outcome. They were talking about things like uh, cyber attacks expected soon, maybe immediately. And finally, White House officials and their anonymous intelligence officials claimed through their corporate press stenographers that Putin's war was going to start the invasion Wednesday morning. Well, barring some last-minute diplomacy, the, com- the Kremlin was going to commit to action, we were told. Well, clearly the emphasis on last-minute diplomacy was the seed they wanted to plant in the minds of Americans. Because the invasion deadline has come and gone. Don't be surprised when the Biden White House attempts to claim that the result is a clear victory for America's cognitively struggling commander-in-chief. The Russian government, for its part, has proceeded to openly mock the idea that the Russian military was going to invade Ukraine. Now, the Biden administration is not going to let a good crisis go to waste, especially when it comes to crises of the manufactured variety. All I'm suggesting is be skeptical. I don't know why they're hyping it, but be be skeptical. It's just it's it's a it's a self-defense mechanism at this point. If a government official is telling you the sun is shining, better take a look outside before you nod your head in agreement. Wanted to touch briefly on uh, what's going on in Canada as well. James Bovard, anytime I see something that he has, has written come come up on my Twitter feed, I like to stop and read it because the guy has a very solid take on just about everything that's going on in Washington, D.C., and, and generally politically. His recent article, Justin Trudeau's Canadian Injustice is Just a Naked Grab for Power, Starts with the line, to save Canadian democracy, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau first, must first destroy it. Bovard says since the start of the pandemic, Trudeau has acted like COVID entitled him to unlimited power in the name of public safety. Kind of like uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo on amphetamines. Now he claims he's entitled to use an iron fist to crush the trucker protest movement against a vaccine mandate. Many of the protesters believe the risks of the vaccine outweigh the benefit. More important, they have the right to control their own bodies. Trudeau responded by vilifying the peaceful protesters. There is no place in our country for threats, violence, or hatred. But Bovard asks, who's really the threat? He says, except Trudeau seems to be doing most of the threats and hatred. He's denounced the protesters baselessly as racist and misogynistic. On Monday, he invoked the Emergencies Act, effectively awarding himself martial law powers to repress resistance. Trudeau said his edict will provide him the ability to compel tow truck companies to remove protesters' trucks. He's even designating protesters as terrorists in the name of cutting off their funding. Canada's Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, announced Tuesday, we are broadening the scope of Canada's anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist financing rules so they cover crowdfunding platforms and the payment service providers they use. 
That's pretty crazy. Banks are authorized to freeze the personal accounts of anyone suspected of donating to the truckers. No court order will be necessary to strip people of their property. The Canadian government also is cracking down on the use of cryptocurrency. Now, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association condemned Trudeau's declaration, warning it threatens our democracy and our civil liberties. Bovard says the trucker protest is exposing the Canadian media elite's contempt right down to perverting the English language. A Toronto Globe and Mail article asserted that freedom has become a code for white identity politics and the far right's weapon of choice in the culture wars and lamented that politicians have used the call for freedom to promote bigoted, racist, and anti-democratic ideas. I mean, that, that sounds like something right out of Mao's Little Red Book. CBC Radio posted an article that struggled to explain why the word freedom is such a useful rallying cry for protesters. Naturally, the government radio network tapped an expert from the Canadian Anti-Hate Network who asserted that the protesters' calls for freedom render the word meaningless. Canadian cartoonist Michael DeAtter, whose work is featured in the Washington Post, portrayed the trucker convoy as fascism incarnate. Now, of course, Trudeau is not opposed to all protests. He recently boasted of his support for Black Lives Matter, and though he invoked martial law to respond to truckers honking horns, Trudeau had no problem with BLM protests that spun out of control into looting, arson, and shootings. In Seattle, rioters allegedly sought to trap cops inside a police building they'd set on fire, Protesters set up an autonomous zone that became the site of numerous murders. Huh, GoFundMe still allows you to donate to that group. Trudeau claims his crackdown on truckers is about restoring confidence in our institutions. But the truckers have already gloriously succeeded in demonstrating the tyrannical nature of Trudeau's regime. As Canadian columnist Andrew Lawton quipped on Tuesday, if you have to tell people you're not trampling their civil liberties, you're trampling on their civil liberties. Bravo. Another great article from James Bovard. I'm watching, I mean, I, I get texts from people and messages from, from listeners all the time. You know, sometimes in the dead of night, hey, are you watching what's going on right now in Canada? And it's, I leave my phone where I can hear it. I guess because I am a little bit of a news junkie, but I'm hoping for the very best for the Canadian people. But if you have no confidence in your leadership, that uh, no confidence is very well placed. That's all I can say. I'm trying to be diplomatic. You have every reason to be concerned about how maniacal those folks at the top of the political chain might be. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, we're going to end on a high note here today. I, I've had some bad news, and I, you know, <clears throat> I don't like to share the bad news, but I feel like we got to acknowledge what's happening in order to face it squarely and and to know how to move forward. And one of the great things about difficult times, such as as what we're seeing right now, is it does tend to bring the leaders to the forefront. In fact, I want to share with you an article I just picked up off the American Institute for Economic Research website, Get Comfortable with Being Uncomfortable. This is from Max Borders. He says, once in a while, a voice you've never heard seems to come out of nowhere. The voice punches you in the gut with concision and force. And when that happens, you know you're hearing the voice of a leader, not a ruler, a leader. 
And a leader is someone you follow because it's the right thing to do, not because you are compelled to do so by other voters or fiat appointers. Well, he says today that voice is Trisha Lindsay. Let me play a little excerpt of her remarks. We have to recognize our power. We are magistrates. What is happening here today, what is happening around our state and in our city, is people are invoking the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. And most of you probably don't even understand what that is and don't even understand what I'm talking about. Well, the doctrine of the lesser magistrates is the doctrine upon which this country was founded. It is the basis of the Tenth Amendment, which says that any authority that is not given to the federal government is reserved to the states. And if our local leaders fail to protect its citizens and fails to step between a tyrannical federal government and its citizens, fails to protect the rights of its citizens, then those rights and authority is extended and given to the people. Oh, wow. She is, uh, she is really something. She is on fire at this, uh, this speech. And as, as uh, Max Borders points out, within 10 minutes... Lindsay manages to not only express and focus the generalized outrage over public health authoritarianism, but she also distills the essence of the liberal American project as a moral political order that advocates of social justice too often seek to tear down. Her speech is the one-two punch the world needs, says Max Borders, and uh, our duty to higher cause of the human freedom should conscript us all into an army of the uncomfortable. Now, here he gets into some explanation of what do you mean by uncomfortable? Well, he says, in my last article, I spoke spoke about Irish democracy, which, according to James C. Scott, is the silent, dogged resistance, withdrawal, and truculence of millions of ordinary people rather than by revolutionary vanguards or rioting mobs. And by the end of that piece, he says, I wonder whether it's time to get loud. Lindsay, Trisha Lindsay, rather, answered that question with her fiery speech. If it's not already on fire, he says, I want to conjure in your being a fine tradition of liberal revolutionaries who were willing to draw a line in the sand and fight for every inch beyond that line, behind that line, rather. We can start with the familiar Declaration of Independence or read the prescient warnings of anti-federalists like Robert Yates, who wrote under the name Brutus. But he says we shouldn't forget about those like Henry David Thoreau, who wrote, Unjust laws exist. Shall we be content to obey them? Or shall we endeavor to amend them and obey them until we have succeeded? Or shall we transgress them at once? Men generally under such government as this think that they ought to wait until they have persuaded the majority to alter them. They think that if they should resist, the remedy would be worse than the evil. But it is the fault of the government itself that the remedy is worse than the evil. It makes it worse. Why is it not more apt to anticipate and provide for reform? Why does it not cherish its wise minority? Why does it cry and resist before it is hurt? Why does it not encourage its citizens to be on the alert, to point out its faults, and do better than it would have them? Now, the answer to Thoreau's questions can only be because it's uncomfortable. And this is, this is the point. He says the declaration signatories never got comfortable. Gandhi never got comfortable. Martin Luther King never got comfortable. Canadian truckers sitting out in the cold and going without work. They're not comfortable. But he says today's Americans have gotten soft. 
We've gotten used to the bread and circuses as well as registering our displeasure through the lowest cost means, which is a social media post cast into a sea of a billion others. Max Borders says it's time to temper our spirits in the fires of discomfort. And the verb temper has dual meanings in this context. The first has to do with moderating our behavior so as to achieve clarity, purpose, and presence of mind. The second is a metallurgical metaphor that means to make ourselves stronger in the uncomfortable fires of civil disobedience. Together, these two senses of temper amount to applying strategic thinking in righteous calm. Otherwise, there's no avoiding it. Change is going to require our sacrifice. Next, he suggests, find the exits. Now, there are a million ways to get comfortable, but some work better than others. He says, I'd like to suggest a few, but the basic architecture comes from Albert Hirschman's classic, Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. If some institution or system no longer serves you, there are three things you can do. Number one, leave the system. That's exit. Number two, protest the system. Voice. Or, number three, stick with the system, hoping it will right itself. Loyalty. Now, unfortunately, the days of voice and loyalty are numbered. As Thoreau suggests in Civil Disobedience, we've tried that, and it has never worked. The infrequent low-resolution feedback mechanism of electoral politics is inadequate and bankrupt when it comes to us lesser magistrates whose rights are purportedly guaranteed in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. Now, Max Borders says we should absolutely not stop using voice, but it's time to start exiting systems left and right, which implies creating a thousand entrepreneurial experiments and systems of shadow governance that work better than the status quo. So what would that look like? Well, he says, take yourself and your kids out of all medical mandates and refuse to comply. Take your kids out of the government schools and associated mandates. Take your money out of the corrupt fiat system and put it into cryptocurrencies or precious metals. Take your money out of the care tell and use more cash doctors and health share plans. Take your family out of jurisdictions that are intolerable or, or oppressive. And take yourself out of this comfortable condition that is America, American apathy. More importantly, Max Borders says, the innovators among us must start providing value for people seeking exits. In other words, provide a place for them to enter and lower the switching costs for them to do so. It isn't going to be easy, but he says it is necessary. All the while, you can use your voice, stand up, lock arms, get loud. After hearing Trisha Lindsay's stirring words, the only question left is, what kind of society do you want your children to inherit? The uncomfortable society in which the institutions oblige us to work together locally to solve problems with hard work, perseverance, and mutual respect? Or the comfortable condition in which everyone thinks of themselves as identitarian victims or supplicants of federal largesse? That really does sound like the choice in front of us. Max Borders says, the good times are over. The hard times are coming. We need strong people like Tricia Lindsay to remind us it's time to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Is that asking too much? I guess it's going to, you know, your answer is going to depend on, you know, where, where you are, you know, mentally, spiritually. What's your state of mind? It took me a long time, but I, I finally have, have gotten to the point where 
I'm okay with being uncomfortable. I've tried to be very conservative and very, you know, uh, you know, limiting risk and limiting, you know, any exposure to discomfort. But over the years, I, I have learned that the very best things and the greatest opportunities in my life came when I was uncomfortable. And I think this is one of those situations where, you know, you, you can accuse me. You're just trying to put a positive spin on this, Brian. But when I contemplate the possibility of hard times ahead, and in fact, I'm, I'm just going to be blunt. When I contemplate the certainty that we have some very difficult times ahead of us, I think it's, it's, it's coming. I do so from the vantage point of one who sees that we are being handed an opportunity to become much better people much stronger people, and I'm talking as individuals, than we were before. Now, that comes as a result of refining, and the refiner's fire, yeah, it's hot. <laughs> it's, it's not pleasant as your dross is burned away, but I think that with, with God's help, that's, that's part of the plan is, you know, hard things are given to us to accomplish. With God's help, we accomplish them, and we move forward not having been destroyed or turned into a piece of charcoal by all that heat and pressure, but rather formed into diamonds. I see diamonds all around me in the people who are doing their best in their own way to stand for what's right. So let's get comfortable with being uncomfortable and let's make the difference that we were born to make. This is The Brian Hyde Show.